Steve. We saw you most recently on Netflix. Yes. Do you get stopped in the street? Um, it, I think it depends on which street. Um, <laughs> because since that recording was done, I've moved. My wife and I, we have downsized and, and moved into a very rural area of Maine. And, and, and then, of course, virus happened. And so I don't see hardly anybody ever. So no farmers pulling over their, um, their trucks and going, <laughs> hey, you're that guy. Aren't you that guy? <laughs> so no. <laughs> Hi, I'm Steve Golson, co-creator of Super Missile Attack and Ms. Pac-Man, and you are listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Richard May, and I'm here as usual with Paul Drury. Hello. And Tony Temple. Hello. If this is your first episode of the Ted Dabney Experience, you may be familiar with Paul's byline from Retro Gamer magazine and Tony's nom de plume, the arcade blogger. You should also check out Tony's recently published book, Missile Commander, A Journey to the Top of an Arcade Classic. It's good enough to carry a foreword by Missile Command and Tempest designer Dave Toyer, so there's no higher praise that I can lavish upon it than that. For this episode, we talk with Mr. Steve Golson, somebody whose name may ring a bell if you've watched the Netflix show High Score. Along with Doug McRae and Kevin Curran, Steve was a founding member of GCC, a company that made its name with their ingenious hacks of Missile Command and Pac-Man. Of course, we cover the infamous Atari lawsuit and standoff, which ultimately saw the MIT alumni produce classics for Atari, such as the frantic food fight and the beautiful singular quantum. Above all, however, this interview is the enduring story of, arguably, the most recognisable female face in video game history, Miss Pac-Man. Finally, a huge thank you to our regular listeners for subscribing and for your continued support and nice words. Thanks also to Vinnie Mainolfi, proprietor of the fantastic Commodore fanzine Free64. Vinnie has gone above and beyond the call of duty in singing our praises, so we just wanted to make it official and say that the feeling is mutual. You can find more info refreeze at freeze64.com. And, of course, the wonderful Retro Asylum podcast. If you're listening to us, then you already know who and what Retro Asylum is. If you like the Ted Dubney experience, you can find all the usual social media links at tdepodcast.net. And please do either leave a review on Apple Podcasts or simply tell a friend. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. Steve, first of all, um, whilst I've never spoken to you, you very kindly signed my Miss Pac-Man flyer years ago. So thank you very much. I did. We're, did did we meet face to face or did? Uh... No, no, no. You sent it over. I'll, I'll, um, and just before I stop my questions, I just wanted to check: what did you actually study at MIT? <laughs> oh, is it one of those? Is that a question in itself? It wasn't. Really... Oh, it's it's a yeah, it's a it's a fun story. Um, so so I studied geophysics at MIT. My Bachelor of Science is in Earth 
atmospheric and planetary sciences. Wow. Um, and my, my interest following my father, who did this for a living, my interest was oil and gas exploration. And that got me into seismology and earthquakes and all sorts of earth science things like that. But this is the late 70s, early 80s, and a lot of the oil exploration geophysics fun all had to do with computers mm -hmm. and digital signal processing. And I said, gee, I, I should learn something about how these computers work. So I took an intro electronics class, and that led me to taking a digital electronics design lab along with Kevin Curran, who was one of the co-founders of General Computer. So he was taking the class along with me, and that was helpful because we got to do work on our homework together and, and whatnot. And that really got me my interest in computers and digital logic and hardware. So by the time General Computer started up, I did not have an electrical engineering background. I was not a software guy. You know, I knew how to program my calculator and little stuff like that. <laughs> but but I knew enough hardware because I had taken this digital electronics lab along with Kevin. So he knew what I could do. And so General Computer started up and I said, well, I'm not going to be much of a software guy, but I can do the hardware stuff. And Kevin and Doug were like, oh yeah, sure, no problem. Let's go. So I'm intrigued that you started at MIT in 1976, I believe. Yes. But of course, MIT is generally recognized as the birthplace of video games since Steve Russell and his friends created Space War back in the early 60s. Yes. I just want to know that when you arrived, were you very aware of that history at MIT? No, no, not at all. <laughs> uh, I, it may have been just in, in passing, but when I showed up, video games were not a thing at all. No. Um, w there was a there was a tank game, an Atari tank game course, in yeah. the uh, in the student center, and I remember playing that in 1976, 77, mm -hmm. and that was sort of the the beginning of it. But the the realization of the the history of video games mm -hmm. and how MIT played a part in it, uh, I did did not know about that at the time. I'd had visions of you sort of wandering to the basement and finding the PDP where Space War had uh, had been written on, but it wasn't quite like that. No, it was not. It was not quite like that. But I must tell you that that years later, I did get to meet uh, Shag Gretz, who was one of the original. Oh yes, one of the team. Yeah, yeah, he was on the team and. At the time, I was doing volunteer work for the Computer Museum, which was based in Boston. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to set up a space war exhibit. And so I got to meet Shag and I got to see his listings of original space war. And we worked together on, on building an emulator to play space war wow. so that people could actually play it in the museum. So, so, you, so you, dis you discovered MIT's history after you'd left, but I'd love yes, that. Yes, absolutely, um, yes. When you ended up uh, living in the, the same dorm, or at least in rooms nearby to Doug McRae and Kevin Curran, I just wondered what your first impressions of them were. So they were a year behind me. Uh, so our dormitory was called McGregor House. It was all single rooms, which was unusual and was, was kind of one of the appealing things about living at McGregor. And the 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 part of the dorm that we were in was split up into suites of eight um and it was all male at that point it's co-ed now but it was all male so mm -hmm. eight eight guys in one suite but 
we actually propped open the fire door between our suite and the suite next to us. And so there was really sort of 16 of us. Wow. And uh, uh, so Doug and Kevin came along a year behind. And I remember my first, uh, just as an aside, there was something of a choice of which new freshman got to live where. It was not totally random. Mm -hmm. And so there was a little bit of choice of the upperclassmen saying, yeah, we want that one in our area. It was sort of like the way fraternities would rush. There was a little bit of that going on. Um, the impression I recall of Doug was he was very impressive because he had a car and, and that was unusual enough, but yeah. particularly unusual for a, for, for a freshman. He lived in New Jersey and he had his car and he would, uh, occasionally drive home because he had a girlfriend and that was also really unusual at MIT. So, so a car and a girlfriend. A he, car yeah. and a girlfriend. Yeah. Already. Are you telling me this was not the normal thing for you? No, no, typically not. No. I wonder, did you bond over video games at all? Was that something that you found you had in common with Doug and Kevin? No, not at all. Okay. Um, and and I do not even recall playing pinball. We had a pinball game at our dormitory. And it may be that I played pinball with them once or twice, but it's not like that was a big thing or that was a big part of our life. Okay, but that that's interesting because I understand that you then saw an opportunity to actually make some money on campus by running pinball and video games. So so was that more about the kind of entrepreneurial spirit than a love of video games and pinball? It was just an accident. <laughs> One of Doug's brothers had a Gottlieb pinball game when he was at a frat at some other college. And so Doug had access to this pinball game. And the the pinball that was at our dormitory got broken, trashed, and the arcade, the route operator pulled it out. And so we didn't have a pinball game at our dorm. And we were all sad about that. And there was a big party coming up, big dorm-wide party coming up. And Doug thinks, hey, I can go get that pinball game that's back at home. And gee, that's an excuse for me to drive home and I can visit my girlfriend. And so so for Doug, it was just, oh, I'll, I'll throw this pinball game in the back of my car because he, he had a wagon. He had a little Datsun wagon. <laughs> and he drives back from New Jersey and he's got this pinball game. And so that was great. So it was set up at the dorm for our party and everyone enjoyed it and had a good time. And of course, Doug is making money. Right. Because you have to drop your quarter yeah. in. And he and yeah. Kevin started chatting about, gee, we could want, why, why don't we, let's do this. We could be partners mm -hmm. and, and start up a little business to, why don't we buy a second machine? Were you, were you involved in this, Steve? I mean, did you help sort of monitor the, the growing array of machines that uh, you were running across campus? So I, I remember really early on, um, I, well, I, I was not involved at the very beginning. It was strictly a partnership between the two of them. And it was a 50-50 partnership mm -hmm. is how they, they set it up. But I was certainly aware of it. And I distinctly remember talking to Kevin right after they got started on it. And I said, Kevin, you guys are running a gold mine here. This is going to be awesome. And it, <laughs> and it was. It was, you know, they were very successful because they... They were very smart about it. I mean, they and and being right there in the same building, if there was any kind of problem with the machine, you just knew to go up and bang on their door and uh, they could fix it for you. 
One of the machines that uh, you had on that round was um, Missile Command. And I just wondered what what you'd learned from watching people play a, a really popular game like Missile Command that maybe you kind of talk into GCC. So that was quite a bit of time after Doug and Kevin first started up their 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 partnership, their business. Mm-hmm. So it was ongoing for several years before GCC came along and before they got their mm-hmm. first Missile Command game. So so there were several years of this becoming a business for these two guys and buying pinball games and buying video games and, oh, we're going to expand from our dorm and into a second dorm and into a third dorm. And they started looking at perhaps opening their own arcade in Boston. And so, mm. they, I mean, it was really... A, and, oh, by the way, they're still students, right, while they're doing all this. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but but watching people play Missile Command what it what it taught you is that you learned how good people could get at a particular game. Mm-hmm. And we saw this even earlier with games like Asteroids, where you could you could see gameplay techniques that the original designer of the game never anticipated. Mm-hmm. And it allowed the players to get to very high scores. So th- that was one thing. A- as far as what I learned about video games and how that applied to GCC. It was more, wow, look at how these players are manipulating this game and learning how to beat it and learning how to get very high scores. And it's not so much the high score as it is. That means they've been on the game for a long period of time and you're not getting that quarter drop. So, um, so you'd look at, well, what, what's the player doing? If I was, if I was a game designer, what would I do differently in order to try and get that game over? Right. I want that game to finish so that he has to drop another quarter in. Okay. Um, so when they actually set up GCC, um, at what point did you become involved? Oh, right away. Um, I, so, so, so I helped out Doug and Kevin um, with their pinball route because they moved out of the dorm and um, rented a house in, uh, in Brookline. And I think there were four four guys altogether that were sharing this house in Brookline, so they no longer had the uh, at the dorm presence. And so um, I was like, "Yeah, okay, you know, I'll hang on to the keys and I'll I'll look after your games when you're away on vacation and that sort of thing." <laughs> so so I started informally working for them, but when the idea of actually forming a company to build this product this this kit for missile command there was a handful of us who were involved right right from the start i mean it was clear that this was kevin and doug's company and they were putting up the money to make it happen but the rest of us at this point i was also living in this house in brookline and so there were four or five of us from there and two more that were friends we had known from our our suite at mcgregor house and like, oh, yeah, I'll work on this. This looks like fun. So it was sort of a whoever's lying around, don't you want to work on this problem? And it was spring break. So, well, gee, all right, I got nothing else to do. Let's, we'll work on this problem. Hey, this looks like fun. So so you spent your spring break working on tech, not driving cars and meeting girls. Uh, have we got that right, Steve? I, I'm, I'm sad to admit that that is, in fact, what happened, yes. Uh, Steve, I, I find it interesting that 
your um, first foray into development was not so much about let's write cool video games, but it was really more from a perspective of an operator. There's a problem here with our with our business model, and we should try and do do something about it. That's a that's a very good way to put it. It was from the operator's point of view, and there were things you could do to the games that you had bought, um, particularly as even on pinball, particularly as pinball games got um, microprocessor controlled and you could adjust things. Well, do you get three balls or do you get five balls? And you could adjust the bonus structure of the game. And so you could, you could do a lot of things to control how difficult the game was for the player. I mean, pinball, Arcade owners would do things as simple as adjust the feet on the game so that there was more of a tilt to the play field, which made the ball roll faster and made it harder to play. Mm-hmm. And so, so the idea of the arcade owner doing stuff to the game to make it more difficult so that the arcade owner makes more money, that was already an, an accepted an accepted thing. And even for video games, it was the little dip switch settings. Oh, do you get a bonus at 8,000 or do you get a bonus at 10,000? Or maybe you get no bonus at all. And and so the arcade owner's mindset of, I've bought this thing. I spent a couple thousand dollars to buy this cabinet or this pinball game. What can I do now to enhance my revenue? Yeah. And so absolutely, that's the way we were looking at it. Here's this thing. What can I do to this thing so that it can make me more money? Yeah. And and it, that was the attitude. It was not, uh, oh, aren't games cool? No, it was all about how do you make money? Yeah. It, it's interesting that Missile Command is arguably one of the sort of earlier games to have a bank of dip switches, as you mentioned. And some of the things you could do specifically with that game were to switch off bonus cities, of course. So you could actually, at its most extreme level, you can set Missile Command so it starts with just four cities and doesn't give any bonus cities. But clearly that wasn't a business opportunity. So uh, presumably you guys were looking to create a sort of Missile Command deluxe, if you like, in order to sell that kit to operators so that they could in turn encourage players to put quarters into what was becoming perhaps a rather tired game out on the arcade floor. And I just wondered when you started with that with that process, what how did you go about deconstructing the code of Missile Command and what were the particular challenges of actually going through that process? So let me give you a little background first. The arcade owners were, there were already modification kits for previous games. There were, there were kits for Galaxians and Asteroids and, and, and whatnot. So it's not like we came up with the idea for modifying games and selling kits that would modify the games. And it was not even our idea to, oh, we're going to change the software to modify the gameplay because there were kits for Galaxians and Pac-Man that, oh, here's a new set of ROMs for your game. And they're changing the software in order to change the gameplay. But really, all they're doing is changing a few tables they're not really reverse engineering the gameplay. Mm. They never really understood the gameplay. They understood, oh, if I change this one byte in the ROM, it 
changes the speed of the attackers, or it changes the number of bad guys on the first wave of Galaxians. I mean, they 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 were able to do that level of sophistication. But what was different about what we started out to do was, oh, we're going to understand how this game works and modify it in a very, very sophisticated way. And I'm not sure whose idea that was, if that was Kevin and Doug came up with that or all of us just like, well, of course, that's what you would do. Yep. Right. I mean, that would that's obvious what you would do if you're an MIT student. That's what you're going to attack. That's that's how you're going to do it. And uh, but but that was a level of sophistication that these other kit makers could not do. And I wonder how much of that decision was driven by um, the fear of legal recourse. Oh, a lot of it was. Um, I mean, we could see, for example, the Galaxian kits or the Pac-Man kits where, oh, it's it plugs into Pac-Man. All it does is change the maze and change the characters a little bit. And so that means that most of the code is still midways or Namco's. Right. And and you're going to, okay, you're going to change a little bit of it and, and sell it as a kit. But that's copyright infringement. We were not interested in that at all. We saw this as an ongoing way to make money. And and so, well, you've got to do it legally right from the start. So that was uh, that did drive our thoughts about the sorts of changes we could make and physically how would we implement it in a kit in a in a form that we could deliver to the customer and yet not infringe on the original manufacturer's copyright so it sounds like it it would be quite a complex and painful process to actually you know get under the hood of missile command oh absolutely absolutely i i don't think we really understood how hard it was going to be. But that's MIT, right? I mean, you show up and you have no idea how hard it's going to be. Right. And, and, and it turns out to be really hard, but it's fun. And and this is the this is sort of the the classic MIT mentality of oh I love hard problems give me a hard problem to solve and and the, there's an enjoyment and in in solving it getting the right answer mm. uh, and and that sort of appeal to to us uh, engineering students so here's this here's this problem oh you're given this game it's called missile command we want to change it we want to modify it to solve the following problems, which are players are playing it too long. Well, we got to understand how it works. Oh, okay. So the the disassembly and reverse engineering of the missile command was um, was a, a difficult task. Uh, we did it fairly quickly, but there were lots of us working on it. So and it was a very collaborative sort of thing. It wasn't just you know one person in a closet. There were a handful of us, and we worked. We worked all hours. So some of us worked late at night, and some would work during the day, and we got a lot done. Yeah, there are some great pictures floating around the web of uh, you guys back in the day in the house in Brookline. Yes, um, with with your feet up, and there's a missile command cabinet which has obviously been dragged across town and, and brought up into the room. Um, what what was the process in layman's terms in terms of getting the code out of a 300 pound arcade cabinet and being able to analyze it and make not make changes but but you know turn it into something else well we could make changes right away so we had this interesting piece of equipment called a microprocessor emulator and the particular one we used was made by a company called Genrad 
and there were several manufacturers at the time that were doing these. And they were aimed at engineers who were doing microprocessor development uh, or doing hardware development for microprocessor-based um, devices. Oh, I'm going to build a microwave oven, right? And so how do you go about it? It's, go, it's got a microprocessor in it. Well, mm -hmm. so you would get one of these development systems and it provided you the capability of getting inside the microprocessor so that you could control your hardware as if you were completely controlling the microprocessor. And it literally had this ribbon cable that came out of the side of this emulator box and plugged into your system, whatever you were designing. Mm -hmm. So for us, we, we took this, this Genrad emulator system, and it sort of looks like a computer. It's got a screen, it's got a keyboard, and it's got this ribbon cable coming out of the side, and you plug it in, and it allows you to have complete control over that piece of hardware. And you can say, okay, run, and it'll run the game. And you can say, okay, stop. Tell me where you are in the code, and tell me all the state of all the, the memory in RAM. And oh, what happens if I can go and change this particular value in RAM? What happens? Oh, turns out that is the number of cities. And, and, and then you could also, you could modify the code because you could say, oh, uh, instead of running the ROMs that are out on the board, I want you to run from my own internal version of code so you could modify it and see what happens. So this, we call this reverse engineering. And so here's this thing, I need to understand how it works. You start to tease it apart and it would display on the screen the code that was being executed by the processor. And so we captured that in a very painful way. We had a Radio Shack computer sitting next to this Genrad and we would type in there was no way to actually capture it off of the Genrad. It just displayed on the screen. And so we would sit down at our Radio Shack and type it in. And then we would start making little notes. Oh, this is the routine that decides how to draw the missiles as they fly across the screen. Hmm. So, so we had to understand how the game worked. And so and I have this map that I drew of every routine in all 12K of the Missile Command code and what was where and which one called which and then all of our little handwritten notes about what it did. And, and once you started to understand how it worked, you could start to think about, well, what can we modify and how would we go about changing it. Mm -hmm. And and again, it can start out to be relatively straightforward things of, oh, well, let's just make everything run faster. Yeah, you could do that. That's just speed up. These kits used to be called speed up kits because literally that's all they would do. I mean, the asteroid speed up kits just made the game go faster. Mm -hmm. Well, what could we do beyond that? Change the gameplay. And that got us into the, oh, we'll add new objects, add this new attack object called the UFO. Yes. Right. And change the change the rate at which the difficulty increases. Yeah. Yep. Right. So 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 that was the 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 nature of it was the first is tear it all apart and understand how it works. And then think about what you could change and how does that play. And so uh, one of the things I was struck by as part of this story was um, the perception of general computer. So as well as having a you know fabulous 
fabulous name, General Computer Corp, sounds clearly far larger than the enterprise actually was, but also how you marketed it, not as a, you know, small black and white advertisement in the back of the trade press, but it was a full-blown colour ad of a nuclear explosion. Yes. Uh, which I thought was a was a stroke of genius, really, so that the perception was, was wow, look at, look at this. That's, yes, marketing. Mm. It's all about marketing. And the first I'll mention the, the name. Nobody could come up with a better name for the company. And I remember we were all sort of sitting around and just, well, what, what are we going to call this? And I, I, there may have been some suggestions that were, that were made. I do not recall any of them, but it was like, well, you know, general computer, what the heck? You're right. It sounds big because there's General Motors and there's General Electric and there's right, right? General Foods and oh, General Computer. Okay, and yeah. and if you start acting big, then people will treat you that way. And that was that was uh, Doug and Kevin their their whole idea of how do you sell this company? And so you get an 800 number so that people can call you toll free. I mean that was that was a huge thing, and and just figuring out how to do that. How do you call the phone company and order one of these things? Remember, there, there's no internet to teach you how to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. These these two guys just had this brilliant business sense, and and, and off they went. And so the, that was the whole the whole thing of well, yeah, we're going to take out these full page ads and an 800 number and act like we're a, a big company. And and so of course the orders started pouring in. Um, but of course it was a double edged sword because not only did you attract the attention of the operators out there who wanted to make a buck, um, but it also attracted the attention of the mighty Atari, who of course were the uh, owners of the Missile Command IP. What what was the fundamental basis of their ultimate lawsuit, which they brought against you guys? So back up a little bit, because Kevin actually called Atari and talked to one of their attorneys when we first started working on this. Oh, okay. And, you know, just out of the blue, he calls up this uh, one of the attorneys at Atari and says, hey, we're going to make one of these kits for your games. What do you think? And the guy's like, yeah, okay, I guess. Sure. And and so, all right, Bye. And off we went. So, so Kevin sort of thought, yeah, well, you know, we're okay. And we were thinking about trademark issues and copyright issues. And that's why we did not call it Super Missile Command or Missile Command anything. Because we said Missile Command, that's a trademark of Atari. So we'll call it something else. And we built our hardware such that we were not copying any of Atari's code. And it required the Atari ROMs in order to make it work. Mm-hmm. So... So, you know, we had thought through this and like, yeah, we, we think we're okay. So we were, it was not entirely unexpected that Atari would come after us, but I think, um, you know, in the back of our minds, we kind of thought, yeah, they might, but we thought we were in great shape and figured it it might start with just, oh, they might just give us a phone call and, you know, what are you guys up to? What the heck are you doing? But no, it starts in bam, here's this lawsuit. So what they claimed and this is a typical lawsuit thing, right? You claim lots of stuff despite what's really happening. You cast a very wide net. And so they claimed copyright infringement and trademark infringement and unfair trade practice and misrepresentation of origin. Mm-hmm. They wanted uh, Five million from Doug and Kevin individually, and five million from the company. <laughs> so, so some of the and and some of those arguments were things we had not considered. 
uh, the the trademark and the copyright, we thought, yeah, we've thought of that, and we don't think there's an issue there at all. The misrepresentation of origin, that was a, oh, huh, didn't think about that. And basically that argument was someone walks up to this cabinet and they think it's made by Atari because it still says Atari everywhere on this cabinet. Right. And then they stand in front of it and put in their quarter and it's not Atari. It's sort of kind of, but not really. And so if there was one claim that they made that might have some validity, it would be like, oh yeah, okay. But then we came back on that and says, okay, well, we'll, we'll sell our kit and we'll sell it with stickers. And, and the arcade owner can put stickers all over the cabinet. Is that what you want? And so that was one of the things we were pushing back on. You know, it's like, look, we left your name, left Atari in the game because most of the code is Atari's code. Yeah. And we don't want to take that away. I mean, that would be misrepresentation saying all of this comes from General Computer when it doesn't. Yes. Yeah. And there's a there's a fabulous press cutting with a, with a, with a picture of Doug. Um, I don't know where it's taken, but it looks like it's sort of outside, literally outside of the courtroom of him standing in front of a missile command cabinet with bespoke side art. Oh, that's the way. No, no, that was that was in our driveway. Oh, OK. <laughs> so at this point, we have left our house in Brookline and we have rented a house out in Wayland, Massachusetts. So a little bit west of the city. So it's outside and and that's where we're engineering away. And the local newspaper, after this lawsuit happens, this local newspaper says, hey, we want to find out what the, your, this local company is doing. And they wanted to come over and, and interview us and, and talk to us. And they interviewed Doug. And Doug's like, well, I'm not going to let you inside because we're working on secret stuff in there. But I'll show you what we're doing. And we wheeled the game outside onto the driveway. And that's where they took the picture. I just wonder that the the further down the lawsuit rabbit hole you guys got was your confidence building. I sort of get this sense from you that you guys were fairly sort of relaxed about it because hey, you know, we're a bunch of students. We haven't even got fifteen million quid between us. You know, bring it on. I that's pretty much what it was. I mean, we were and and I was very removed from the the finances of what's it costing to to do this. That was strictly Kevin and Doug. Mm. But I, I think our attitude was, we didn't do anything wrong. We think we're fine, and we're going to keep fighting this. And despite the, the, the first few court rulings that went against us, they did not go against us quite as badly as they could. So we looked at that as an opportunity. Hmm. And um, yeah, what's the worst that can happen? Gee, I have to go back to school? Okay. All right. You know, <laughs> what, the company shuts down? Like, oh, okay, great, I'll go, I'll go find something else to do. But we thought we had a very, very good point and that uh, legally, more and more as we got into discovery, um, it looked more and more like a lot of Atari's claims were not valid and they would have been, been struck down. And um, I suspect that Atari started to see it that way as well. Yeah. The hope from their side, I think, was that, well, we're big Atari. And if we file a lawsuit against someone, they're just going to roll away and die. They're just going to, oh my gosh, and they're going to fold up. And we did not. And we fought back. So, so that was one thing. And then when it started to look like we might actually prevail, well, that would be really bad. They really did not want that. And then finally, from Atari's point of view, I think once the business people looked at it, instead of just the legal people, the business people are like, 
hey, these are really smart people. This is General Computer. Mm -hmm. They're smart guys. They were very impressed with technically the work we had done in super missile attack. It's like, why, why, why are we doing this, Atari? Why are we doing this? Why don't we get these people to work for us? That would be smart. I was, I was going to ask you about that. You know, I, I just wonder if there was a turning point from Atari's side where actually, you know, the the nightmare scenario was sort of looming upon them, where they thought, well, Jesus Christ, if we if we lose this lawsuit, the ramifications of this are going to be immense on our business model because obviously Atari's business model was, well, once operators have finished with Missile Command, we want them to come to us with another $2,000 and buy our next game. Yes. Rather than rather than sort of buying a, a kit for a couple of hundred dollars. And I, I, I just wonder if one could make the argument that actually in some ways GCC let Atari off the hook and, and actually did the whole industry a favor by accepting the settlement that they ultimately put in front of you? Oh, I think so. I think it would have been a, a very very bad precedent mm. for Atari and 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 for the industry at least as far as the traditional manufacturers would look at it right mm-hmm. if it if it was legally um if the court ruled that you could legally modify software and that the end user once they had purchased software was allowed to modify it and or or buy a product that would modify the software i mean that's a, that's an enormous opening for third parties to come in and start hacking with your code. And maybe that would be better for everybody, but it's certainly not a good deal for Atari, right? For the original the original manufacturers. Mm. So here's another interesting thing. So so this this case, this was very very early in the whole copyright for software and copyright for audiovisual products like video games. And what protection is there really? Nobody knew. It had not been settled in court. And after we were done, uh, within another year or two, I'd have to look up the exact dates, there were a couple of, of landmark cases that were argued. And one was paperback software, um, and the other was Broderbund. Um, but one of those was argued in front of Judge Keaton, which was our judge. <laughs> and And I always wondered if when Judge Keaton got that case, that had to do with software and what is protectable. I wonder if he remembered. Oh yeah, I remember that video game case. Yeah, sure. It's it's fascinating. It's fat. It was it was. I I try and explain this to people now because I I get lambasted by people sometimes who are like you're just one of those pirates who was stealing other people's efforts. And I'm going, man, back then it was not at all clear that it was illegal. There's no way you could do this today. There's no way you could do super missile attack today, right? It, it's, the law is too settled. Mm-hmm. And, but back then, it was not at all clear. So, you know, hey, I'm happy to be a pioneer. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's probably also worth pointing out the actual physical execution of super missile attack was completely different to what had been done up to that point in that it was a separate kit that you plugged into the existing uh, Missile Command PCB? Yes, there were there were kits for asteroids, for example, but they were just playing with the hardware. They were doing things like adjusting the clock yes. and speeding up this and speeding up that. They were, they were true hardware hacks. Mm-hmm. So we were delivering software 
in a way other than here's just a set of ROMs, sure. which was how people had done it up to that. And there were and there were two reasons for it. One was we did not want to ship you a set of ROMs that was mostly Atari code with just a little bit of ours because that's copyright violation. And then secondly, we wanted to protect our our own intellectual property. And if you ship somebody a set of ROMs, they can just duplicate it. Right. So so we wanted to protect our work. And that was uh, another way. So it was sort of, we got two things for one, right? Just to, um, to wrap up the super missile attack story, Steve. So the settlement essentially was Atari saying, okay, why don't you guys come and write games for us? We're going to uh, pay you guys to do that. Did that have any effect on the structure of GCC as an entity? After that settlement, in other words, was GCC still a separate company, but just ultimately with a contract for Atari or, or, or were you guys in any way a physical part of Atari's corporate structure? Oh, we were completely separate from Atari. Okay. And and actually the the agreement that was ultimately signed was not with Atari. It was with Warner Communications. Of course. Um, and, and I'm not sure why that was. I think there was some business reason why Warner wanted to structure it that way. So we had an agreement with Warner Communications, and that was where everything was coming from. But everything we were doing was, was for Atari. Steve, hi. So... Uh... In the settlement with Warner Communications and Atari, um, you were ordered to obtain permission from any manufacturer of each game you designed an enhancement kit for because you guys were scouting around already during this lawsuit for, for other games to, to, to enhance. And you were obviously looking for games with a large install base. And I believe you considered Asteroids before settling on perhaps the most obvious title, which is Pac-Man. Um, and this is where Crazy Otto came from. So I'd like you to tell me, first of all, before we talk about Crazy Otto, I'd like you to tell me why he was called Crazy Otto. No one remembers. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and I've asked, I've, I've sort of gone back to everybody who was around and like, do you remember where that game, where the name came from? And, and nobody really remembers. Um, we must have had a name for it while we were doing development because the name Crazy Auto showed up very late. Right. And and I think it was, oh, just the kit, right? We're doing working on Pac-Man. And yeah, we'll work, figure out the name later. So I'm I'm not sure we even had a name for it until Crazy Auto showed up at the very end when we oh, we're actually gonna put it out on test. We need to come up with a name for it. And am I right in thinking you guys kind of bluffed Bally Midway you kind of you you called them up and you were like hey we've just uh I don't know if you've heard but we've just taken Atari to town um and we also want to work on your game too how about it that's that's pretty much how it happened so back up one second when you said uh the settlement we had with Warner and and Atari hmm. So there's two things that happened. One was Atari dropped their lawsuit. Right. And the second thing that happened was we signed this development agreement with Warner. Mm. And legally, they have to be two separate things because you, you cannot combine them together and say, oh, well, the lawsuit, things are happening in the lawsuit under duress because, or you were forced to sign this development agreement in exchange for the lawsuit being dropped, right? Mm. 
even though that's what sort of happened. They really legally they're they're separate and distinct things. And so Atari drops their lawsuit. We sign an agreement with Warner, and it's not that one is tied to the other, even though really they kind of were. It was like you know the same people saying, "All right, all right, all right, we'll drop this, and then we'll hire you guys." So as part of that agreement, we finished Super Missile Attack in about two months of work. Yeah, we started it in late March. And by mid-May, we were we were shipping product. Yeah. And immediately, well, what's the next kit? This is this is great. We love this. What are we going to work on next? So, as you say, we thought about asteroids, which was interesting because we already had the development system, the development system for missile command. We could use for asteroids because they both used the same. 6502 microprocessor. So that had a lot of attraction to it. And we looked at it and played with it. And But the the big thing was, was Pac-Man. And I think it was one of Doug's friends who suggested to him, oh, you should look at Pac-Man. Um, you, you said it was obvious. Well, it was not really obvious right then. Okay. Because it was not, it was not the huge hit yet. Right. Right. It looked right, like it right. was going to be. It was a big hit sure. in Japan, sure. Yeah, with Namco, sure. And it was just getting going in the U.S. And you could say, ooh, all right. Well, if this is a big hit, then we'll have our kit done at just the right moment because we'll hit the market when it's cresting, right? When Pac-Man is at its most popular and all the arcades have it and the arcade owners are starting to see their revenue drop, that's when we want to hit the market. And so it looked like our timing would be really good. Hmm. So, so that was where Pac-Man came along. And uh, so beginning of June, we started, we started working on it. So, so Pac-Man is something, uh, something of a deterministic game. Yes. You learn the mazes, you learn the roots, you learn that if you hide in a particular corner, the ghosts can't get you. Correct. You can learn the patterns. People do. People play all the way through to level two, five, six, yes. et cetera, which is a thing these days. Yes. Tell us, tell us about what you wanted to do to make your game different. Well, the first thing was to get rid of that predictability, was to make it random. So make the, uh, the monsters uh, algorithm, make it truly random. And, and it turned out that the, the Z80 microprocessor uh, used in Pac-Man um, had a particular feature of it that gave you access to a, a truly random number. Mm. Uh, there's a free-running counter inside the microprocessor that you have access to. Mm. And so, oh, well, we'll use this. And this was a, it, it's not like we dreamed that up. That was a, in, in some various programming guides for Z8. Oh, by the way, if you need a random number, you can use this uh, refresh register. Mm. So that was pretty obvious right from the start was, oh, yeah, we're going to change the algorithm. But yet again, it's a reverse engineering problem of finding where is the right place to add that little bit of randomness. And the number two thing would be change the maze. And that had already been done. There were, there were enhancement kits that basically were different mazes for Pac-Man. Right. So that was an obvious thing, but because if we do it the way we did Super Missile Attack, we're, okay, we're going to ship this as a little board. Well, we can add extra memory to it, and we could, there's no reason to stop with just one maze. We could have more, 
we could have two mazes or four or six or something, but and we'll put in the extra ROM that's required to switch between those mazes because the maze actually takes a significant chunk of the memory space of the ROM inside Pac-Man. So it's not like, oh, well, we'll just double it. You know, we'll get rid of some other routine and, and double it. You, you really needed to add more ROM in order to get the extra mazes. And uh, we said, yeah, yeah, sure, we could do that. So that was the, I think, the two big things that, uh, how do we make it random? How do we add more mazes? Um, and then I guess the third really big thing was making the bonus uh, fruits move around the maze. Yeah, sure. What's with the pretzel? I have to ask. <laughs> so the pretzel, so we changed some of the the bonus characters. You took out like the Galaxian. Yes. Yeah, Galaxian icon, right? So we, okay, we learned our lesson with Atari, right? We're going to avoid trademark issues. Mm. So we get rid of all the characters that are able to be trademarked. And the Galaxian clearly came from another Midway Namco game. So, okay, we'll get rid of the Galaxian. And and we got rid of the uh, characters that were hard to understand what they were. So there's one of them that is- Oh, the great. Grapes, the grapes. The grapes. Yeah. And nobody knew that they were grapes. And and people called it the, the hand, hand grenade. grenade yes. And they called it, yeah. And so we we're, okay, fine. We'll just get rid of it, right? Just replace it with something else. And we and the same thing with the, the, the key and the bell. And the, so, yeah, we're going to make these all fruits. And um, so we put in our own banana and our own pear. And, and you thought pretzel. Pretzel's a fruit. Well, <laughs> no. Pretzel really, <laughs> that, that was sort of for, uh, in honor of Kevin Kerr. Because Kevin, Kevin really liked salty snacks, right? And and we always had, you know, there was always the bag of pretzels, and oh, those are Kevin's pretzels, kind of thing. So it was, uh, there was sort of this joke of, oh, we put that in for Kevin, okay, right? Everything else is healthy fruits, and then there's Kevin's pretzel. Just going back to the mazes, yes, actually, um, Steve, I, I believe you you attempted to introduce um, a maze exit, top and bottom. But the ghosts never chose to go that way. Can you can you talk to that a little more? What, what was going off there? Um, that's what I recall is that something about their something about their algorithm. They would never chase you through the vertical maze. Right. And I think another issue was, um, in order to if you if you did that, you had to be careful to not draw the monster going down because it would overwrite the status bar at the bottom, right? And it would overwrite the score at the top, mm. just because of the way the hardware was done. Right. There was no clean way to make the, the monster disappear one row at a time if it went up or down. Sure. So it was, just, it was just more trouble than it was worth. It was like, yeah, okay, we could figure that out, but uh, partly it was a, a graphics hardware problem. Right. And and speaking of graphics, um, I also saw that you employed, you guys employed a, a light bright um, to aid with your, um, your, your, what you called stamps back then, but what we now know as sprites. Yes. To aid in your sprite creation. Um, th that I found in, uh, uh, that was amazing. I was really curious about that. Um, I mean, for those, which is probably most of us now, who don't know what a light bright is, can you, can you explain? So... So a little background here is when you're designing your video game and you're trying to do character development 
is the phrase we use. Right. It's what we called it back then, and it's what you call it today. It's like, oh, I've I I need to draw a um a, a little Pac-Man hero character, or I need to animate the monster as it moves around, or I want to I want to design a banana for a new bonus character. How how do you do that? Well, back then you needed a graphics computer. And we did not have anything like that. So you just grabbed your graph paper and maybe some colored pencils and you started filling in little squares and trying to imagine what it would look like. And and the actual process of taking that drawing and coding it up, putting it on ROMs and plugging it into the game in order to actually see it on the screen, in order to make that happen, we could not just say draw this pixel on the screen. So you would like this way to sort of interactively play with the, the, the pixels and see what they, well, what if I make this yellow? And what if I make this red? And what if you move this here? What, what's it, what's it going to look like? And, and this was Chris Rode, one of our developers, one of the software guys. And, and he shows up one day with the light bright. Mm. So the light bright is a toy that it, imagine a screen with a, uh, a light bulb behind it and a lot of little holes in the screen, except you have a, a piece of, of opaque black paper over the, the front. So none of the light is getting through, but you have these little plastic pegs of different colors. And so you plug the little peg into one of the holes and guess what? Now the light can get through and that little peg lights up with whatever color peg it was. Oh, it's a red peg. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's an orange peg. And so you'd get your light bright and they would come with these, these uh, black sheets of paper with little numbers on them. And so you would know, oh, plug an orange one here and an orange one here and a green one here and a green one here and red ones all over here. And it would, it would make a picture. And Chris, I guess, had this brilliant idea of, well, I could use this to design characters because you just plug in the colors that you want and you can kind of imagine what it's going to look like on the screen. So Chris used it. I I used it a tiny little bit, I think. And, and I think uh, uh, Mike Horowitz may have. I'm, I'm not sure if I could say that it definitely uh, led to the design of the uh, Ms. Pac-Man characters, but it was a it was a cool thing. I remember playing with it and looking at uh, at characters and what they might look like on the screen. Uh, Steve, let's talk about how Crazy Otto went from being called Crazy Otto to to being first Miss Pac Man. So so well, why was it called Crazy Otto at all? It was the same reason we called our first kit super missile attack we we wanted this kit that was going to plug into a pac-man game we wanted to avoid trademark issues and so we're not going to call it super pac-man or pac-man 2 or anything like that so we have to come up with a different name and and the name crazy auto i i think came from patty goodson who was she was the sister of one of our Sweet mates, and she was a musician, professional musician living in New York City, and sort of had this artistic bent. And somehow we roped her into helping us out. And I think she came up with the name, but she denies it. She does not remember. Right. Okay. But we needed a name before it first went out on test. And Crazy Auto, fine, sure, great. Well, we ended up not selling it ourselves. We ended up licensing the game to Midway. Well, Midway has no trademark issues, so they can call it Pac-Man. So initially, 
it was going to be Super Pac-Man. Yeah. Um, okay, it's not Crazy Auto. It's called Super Pac-Man. And we were, yeah, fine. Okay, great. And we can get rid of our Crazy Auto character and use the Pac-Man, original Pac-Man character. Like, sure. Okay. So, and then I get a phone call from Stan Jaraki, who right. was the head marketing guy at um, at Midway. And I remember taking this phone call at our, our house in Wayland. And Stan says, ah, we... We've got another change we want you to make to the game. Like, okay, we want the female character to be the main character of the game. Well, there was already a female character in Crazy Auto because the cutscenes had the same as what's in Ms. Pac-Man. There's there's the two characters and they fall in love and they chase each other and they have a baby. And (laughs) um, but in Crazy Auto, there was just it was just red, right? You had the yellow character which was the hero character of the game. And you had this other one that was just red. Yeah. And so it was like, oh, what? which color combination are we going to use for this female character? Oh, that's ugly. Oh, don't use that one. So we found one that was red. So Stan's make the female character, the hero character. Okay. Hmm. And we're going to call the game Miss Pac-Man. Um, I believe that was the first choice. It may have been the first choice was Pac-Woman. Yeah, Miss Pac-Man and Pac-Woman. I'm, I'm, yeah. Miss Pac-Man. Miss, M-I-S-S, Miss Pac-Man or Pac-Woman. It was one of those first, and then it went to the second one, and... But wait, she's married, right? Well, Miss Pac-Man's Pac-Man has a baby. Has a baby, yes. Miss Pac-Man has a baby. Right, so I think it may have been... It must have been Pac-Woman first. Right. And then... That rolls off the top. Right, and then it came back, no, 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 let's make it Miss Pac-Man. Like, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, the marketing people are involved now. They're like, change this, change this. Okay, fine, whatever, yeah, we'll change yeah. it. And then very quickly um, after that, it was, oh my gosh, no, cannot be Miss Pac-Man because she has a baby. So let's Ms. Pac-Man. She gets married. <laughs> she's already married, something, whatever. God bless puritanical America. Yeah, exactly. That that must be the, it must have been Pac-Woman first. And this was quite a swift process going from the initial Crazy Otto character design to the final Miss Pac-Man sprite, I believe. It was uh, fairly swift. It was, yeah, two or three weeks. Right. And we were, we were done. We were ready to. Sure. So this is end of October when we signed the agreement with Midway. And by mid-November, it was pretty much done. Yeah. The, the, all the character design for, oh, let's make it female. The change to let's make it female and all the iterations through the, the, the character design. The basic uh, idea was there within just a few weeks. Well, I mean, making, making Pac-Man female was, was itself a stroke of genius considering the popularity of the game with, with young girls yes. in the arcade. Yes. Uh, with mo- most games aimed at boys, you know, right. shooting things and, and blowing things up. But Pac-Man comes along and, you know, we've all seen well most of us have seen the videos of um you know the vox pops of teenagers going oh my god pac-man's so cute yes uh, yes so it was a, it was a, it was like a ripe market yes and that first phone call with stan i that's i told him i was like stan this is crazy you're gonna alienate all the little boys in the arcade <laughs> and stan being the marketing genius he's like no this is gonna be great he's like you know women love pac-man mm. and we're like yeah okay sure he was a he was a smart marketing guy. Stan's still with us, I guess. So uh, yeah, you know. Um, I w- so so those of us at GCC, I I think we're we're very careful to say the female character started with us because it existed in Crazy Auto. Yes. But the idea to make that the hero character of the game, um, that's that's got to be Midway. That was Midway's idea. Now now jumping ahead. Uh, 
jumping ahead a little bit, um, it struck me something you mentioned in one of your interviews. You know, Miss Pac-Man was out there for a good six months without being cloned, which was the norm back in the day. People would rip things off left, right and center. But due to some rather clever anti-piracy hardware uh, or code, I should say, on your part, um, you, you guys managed to stave that off, which must have been a boon to Bally Midway. I think so. Um, and it actually, it was much more hardware than software in the, the anti-piracy or anti-copying. Right. Uh, we did a little bit of that on super missile attack. Then it got much more sophisticated in what we did for, uh, for the Pac-Man kit for Crazy Auto. Mm. But I think that um, absolutely that helped with the success of the game early on because it could not be pirated. Also because... Midway was so good at cranking out these games at that point. Mm. Remember, it's basically a Pac-Man cabinet. I mean, they they changed the shape of the cabinet a little bit, but basically it's Pac-Man. And so they had gotten really good at cranking out Pac-Man cabinets and they wanted to keep doing that. They needed another big hit to keep their factory busy. So they were able to to turn them out at a, a pretty good clip. It, w- it would be interesting to see the production numbers for Ms. Pac-Man, how it changed over, over time during 1982. When did they really start making them? But but back to your 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 main point, I I think that the the anti piracy, the anti copying hardware, um, absolutely helped with the success of the game because you could only buy it from Midway. And of course, within every single Miss Pac Man cab out there was essentially a Pac Man board with a Miss Pac Man add on. Is there any any particular reason why why it was an auxiliary board to a Pac Man board rather than a dedicated PCB? Uh, given given the arrangement at the time, which was official, rather, you know, uh, in contrast to the situation with Atari and the Missile Command PCB and the auxiliary board, this was a, a slightly different state of affairs. So I was I was just curious as to why why Miss Pac-Man did not get its dedicated did not get a dedicated PCB. Well, we talked about that early on, right? Um, and I think that well, the first reason it was done that way is is we designed it that way because. That's the way it was going to be marketed, right? We were going to sell this extra board and sell it to arcade owners who already had a Pac-Man cabinet. So that's how it was designed. Yes, of course. Okay. Sure. Uh, but as yeah. soon as we get with Midway, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We could sell it as a kit. That was one thing Midway was thinking was to just sell it themselves to arcade owners. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then, oh, well, we'll just sell it as a new game. The easiest thing from their point of view from manufacturing is just to it's pac-man with an extra board added to it and we'll just start making them that way and then maybe we'll redesign the board and put it all on one but i think the the cost savings would have been minimal uh compared to the complexity of changing their manufacturing and now having two kinds of Ms. Pac-Man cabinets out there. Yeah, sure, fine. Uh, and two different boards. And from an arcade owner standpoint, that's like, that's great. I can use the same board in either a Pac-Man cabinet or a Ms. Pac-Man cabinet. And also, I think it made it simpler with Midway dealing with Namco, perhaps, because Midway paid Namco their royalty for every Ms. Pac-Man game. I think they just said, yeah, we're just going to treat this like another Pac-Man cabinet and pay Namco however much... And it certainly made that easier. It's like, look, it's it's Pac-Man. See? Pac-Man board, Pac-Man ROMs. 
it's just another Pac-Man, right? Yeah. And Midway sends Namco a check and they send us a check and everybody's happy. Yeah. Speaking of which, just to conclude, can you recall uh, what you guys earned per uh, Miss Pac-Man PCB produced? Do you remember the numbers from back then? Um, it was... Let me do the math. Gone all cagey all of a sudden, Steve. <laughs> you need to check with your Swiss bank account. Well, I, I've, I've, I've never said what the number is. The per, the per board number. Okay. Um, I, I don't want to speak to that. Sure. But the, the total amount that we made from Midway on Ms. Pac-Man cabinets hmm. uh, is about $10 million. Right. And now part of the reason- Not to be sniffed at. Right. And so over, you know, for a hundred and, you know, so you do the math, 115,000 cabinets or something. I'll let you do the math. <laughs> yeah. So, well, and also because that payment was spread over four years. Sure. So, and I don't know if that was as much for our benefit as for Midway's benefit. So- so, so we got, I think it was four years, three or four years, something like that. So, and, and then it earned interest. So that was, again, part of that $10 million is we're earning interest on three years of Midway not paying us our money yet. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a pretty good chunk of money there for a few months work. I'll say. And think about the number that really impresses me is, so 100,000 cabinets at $2,500 a cabinet or so, that's a quarter of a billion dollars in sales of Ms. Pac-Man cabinets <laughs> in one year. Yes, indeed. It's like, wow, really? Okay, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was worth dropping out of school for that. Steve, there's something I neglected to ask you about earlier on, and in relation to Crazy Otto, there was some guy who, at a very young age, built a custom Crazy Otto cabinet. In fact, I think he built quite a few um, Pacific arcades. You're talking about Brendan Parker. So I met him first when I think he was 12 years old. Wow. And he had already started programming his own games and modifying games. And he was really keen on Crazy Otto. He knew the story of it. He may have been to one of the talks I gave, I think, out at California Extreme. Uh -huh. And he, he contacted me and he asked questions about Crazy Auto. He wanted to code up his own version of Crazy Auto, sort of what it might have been. Sure. All right. So, and I, I could not, for copyright reasons and whatnot, I could not give him the code that I have, the old vintage code. And he's like, fine, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna write my own. And hmm. he knew enough from the from what I had shown talks that I had given of, oh, well, this is what the character looked like. Hmm. And other than that, it's basically Ms. Pac-Man, right? So the gameplay stays the same. So so he coded up his own crazy auto and he did his own um cabinet artwork, sort of in spot. This is what it might have looked like hmm. if Crazy Auto had actually come out as a cabinet. What might the plexi overhead look like what might the side art have looked like and so yeah he he uh, did his own artwork and uh it's awesome
Steve, one of the things that Miss Pac-Man did was put a uh, female character right in the centre there. Uh, and I want to pick up that theme, please. The coin-up industry was pretty male-dominated in the early 80s. But uh, we noted that GCC ended up recruiting quite a few women to the team. Betty Ryan, who did Quanta, and a sister, Carol, in testing and debugging, and Patty Goodson, who did a lot of the music, amongst many others. I just wondered, we as a company, were you trying to consciously encourage kind of gender diversity? Um Frankly, no, I don't think so. I, I think it was, we were looking for the best people we could get. And some of them happened to be women and like, okay, good for us. So, but, but it was, you said the video game industry was mostly men and yeah, most industries was mostly men back then. Right. So so there were a few women at other companies. Certainly Atari had a, had a few. So I don't think it was a, a, a deliberate point on our part to try and add women into the mix. It just it's just one of those things that happened. And um, we have heard stories about, you know, it was a different time, different attitudes. Yeah. You know, did any of those women in your experience, uh, you know, on the receiving end of negative or sexist attitudes at the company? Um. Looking back on it, yeah, probably. I don't think it was to the um, in any sort of abusive way. It was just a sort of an attitudes. I I know that you know. Uh, I think Patty Goodson tells the story of how someone said, "Oh, we need someone to answer the phone, and it has to be a woman." Hmm. And you know, our our normal receptionist was out for the day or something. You have to come and answer the phone, and and you know that that's just the way companies are, right? You always have a woman answering the phone, and and so I, I don't think anything beyond uh, that that sort of level of uh, I am not one to speak in their in their stead. I do have a story that Betty Ryan has told. Um she was a very early computer science graduate at Harvard. Absolutely brilliant woman, uh an amazing programmer, but she was also very attractive. She was, you know, very good-looking woman. Okay, fine. That's just the way it was. And she tells the story of how she was at one of our trade shows. Uh, and I don't know if it was during the video game days or if it was later during the uh, when we moved on to doing Macintosh things. But she was giving some demo at the at our trade show booth. And she says the guy she's given the demo to does some sort of throwaway joke about ha ha ha. Well, I bet you didn't know anything about this yesterday. Right, thinking that she's one of the booth babes was the the name you used back then. You know, you just hired these attractive women to stand in your booth, right, and and entice the men who were going to come in and look at your stuff. And she's like, "Well, I have a master's degree in computer science from Harvard University." So hopefully, shut him up there. Exactly. Um, so I've I've, uh, I've spoke to Betty, and she yes. said, um, having you know graduated from Harvard, working at GCC was the only place where um, that's ever been looked down upon because you were all MIT um, graduates, okay? So I wanted to ask about that. Did um, Oh, yes. We didn't look down on her because she was a woman. You know, we looked down on her because she came from Harvard. So <laughs> let's just settle that right now. Did you... <laughs> She's you know, a phenomenal Robotron player, by the way. Okay. Never challenge her to Robotron. She will absolutely ice you. Yeah. Good knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, she said when she came for the uh, the interview at GCC, yeah. uh, um, the, the, the interview question was, what's your high score on Gallagher? Which sounds like an interesting <laughs> process to recruit people. Uh, nice. Um, yes. I wanted to know, though, is that did you, uh, you know, did you sort of go back to your alma mater? 
did you go back to MIT as most of you had graduated from there? You know, did you end up going back to find fresh talent for your new company? Oh, absolutely. And I think in 1983 or maybe it was 1984, we were like the number one company. We recruited more MIT grads than anyone else. Really? Yeah. We like beat out Hewlett Packard and IBM and those sorts of things. So, um, and it was a, a really easy pitch because you could say we're literally in Kindle Square. We're right around the corner from MIT. Right. And so you can keep living wherever you're living now and you get to work on games hmm. and you get to stay in the Boston area. It's like, this is awesome. And so people were like, this sounds great. So, and what we realized is that MIT students had the right mentality, which was work hard, solve the problem. Here's an engineering problem. I want to solve it. I want to solve it and do it quickly. And I'm going to work hard. And that's just the way MIT students are. When 1982 came round, you started working on your own uh, own coin ops. Uh, particularly, I'm going to ask about Food Fight and Quantum. And I think it was interested that both of those games have several things in common. Firstly, they're sort of wildly original. Um, you know, they're really unusual ideas. And I just thought after kind of GCC making their name from Super Missile Attack and Miss Pac-Man, you know, obviously based on established titles, was there a conscious decision to try and be very original? Well, that's what Atari wanted us to do, Okay, right? The, the whole point of our agreement with Atari and Warner was we were going to develop original games. And but I and I appreciate you saying that those were you you find those to be uh original games. Yeah. It was hard to do that back then. You saw all these really really phenomenally good games that came out during what we now call the golden age of of coin op. Uh, yes. And boy, that was hard to do. I mean, trying to come up with a game that had good gameplay and that you could uh, you could actually execute on the hardware of the time mm -hmm. was uh, was was difficult. And and you can go back and look at a lot of the not so good games that came out during that period. And you yeah okay yeah. we got a few really good ones and there was a bunch of turkeys. <laughs> but yeah so but as as soon as we started the Atari deal. We all started dreaming up games and and thinking about game ideas and and I have a whole big list of everybody knows really well Food Fight and Quantum because they made it into production and and Junior Pac Man because that made it into production but we yeah. had uh, yeah. an enormous number of other ones that were in various stages of of development and production or that made it all the way ready for production and we put it out on test and it's like. Eh, gee, that one's, eh, people don't like that one. Okay. <laughs> was it always a surprise when you put something out? Like, I was thinking of this game that never made it to market called Nightmare. Yes. Um, is that the kind of thing that you had great hopes, but then <laughs> when the public sees it, they don't quite agree with what you thought a good game might well, be? Well, Nightmare made it made it further nightmare was ready to go into production ah. and so it was luckily that's that's the only reason we have nightmare today is because it made it far enough along that it got shipped off to atari 
And and that's where it was discovered years later. It was in some Atari dumpster or some, <laughs> and somebody found it and said, "Ooh, what's this?" And they were able to get it running, and that wow. was that was nightmare. So so it was very far along. It had already been out on test and had gone through our own focus group testing at GCC. But we had some other games that got very far along before they they were abandoned. We had one game called uh, Rock Slide, right. um, which was kind of a a sort of a maze game. You're you're climbing up a mountain and there's creatures and they're throwing rocks at you that roll down the mountain and stuff like that. And you know, that was fun and we played that. We had it in the lab and we play it and it okay. it got far enough along to get out on test. And it yeah, and it didn't do that well. And you you know, is it the gameplay? Is it the no one is attracted to a game called Rock Slide? You know, what what was it? I don't know. And none of us knew. That was the thing. None of us knew. And you'd put all this effort into developing this game and you'd put it out and go, oh, huh, okay. All right, well, we'll move on to the next thing. Another thing that Food Fight and Quantum have in uh, common is that they're they're non-violent. Well, right. unless with Food Fight you you can't throw in a pie in someone's face. But I mean, they haven't got a traditional fire button. So again, were you trying to explore kind of non-violent, non-space shooting um, kind of games? Well, if you talk to you talk to Jonathan Hurd, who developed Food Fight, mm-hmm. and he says that yes, very deliberately, he wanted to do something other than a shooting game because everybody was doing shooting games, right? It's like, oh yeah, okay, space games, shoot things, fly around, yeah, 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 okay. Yeah. And he wanted to come up with something that was totally different. So so Jonathan Hurd says that, yeah, he very deliberately tried to come up with a game idea that was not a fire button. And he says he sat down and he thought about, well, what else could your button do? If it's not fire, what action is it doing? And well, you know, jump. Oh, you know, okay. I mean, Donkey Kong, right? That's the jump button. Uh, And he thought, throw. Oh, okay. And he says, what could you throw? You could throw food. And, you know, it just all starts to fall into place after that. That game's, I think, something of an overlooked gem. I really like how kind of fast it is that levels can last like a matter of seconds. Yes. Again, I wonder if that was going back to your sort of arcade operating roots, like get, get them on and get them off when it comes to players. Were you very conscious of making games that were sort of fast? I, I you know, I never thought about that. Um, but I suspect that certainly... Doug and Kevin having that operator background uh, and appreciating how a game should play such that the operator is making money because that's the whole point, right? It has to be fun to play and so that the player wants to keep coming back. We would put uh, rather sophisticated uh, measurements in the in the prototype games that we would put out on test. So you could say, well, what's the average game length, and what's the time in between games, and and you you could get start to get a feel for well, how much money are you going to make from this game? Oh, if the average game is ninety seconds, oh, that's very different from an average game being eleven minutes. Right? Yeah, it's interesting how you brought that uh, mentality to actually develop it. Um. Also about developing uh, Food Fight and Quantum, for that matter, you know, are a considerable step up uh, in terms of sort of graphical sophistication. I wondered how important it was that they both contained a 68,000 chip. And I just wondered how important that uh, chip was in kind of upping GCC's game. It was really important to us as developers because we wanted to work with a sophisticated microprocessor that would support higher level languages. 
So Atari worked, mm -hmm. everything was written in assembler. And, and that was the typical way that games were developed throughout the industry was you wrote in 6502 assembler or Z80 assembler or whatever. And given the power of the processor, that's really the only way you could possibly do it. You had to write in assembler. Mm -hmm. But by the time we got going in 1982, um, you had these much more powerful 16-bit processors like the Motorola 68000. And we looked at that and said, well, that's the processor we want to use um, because not only is it is it more powerful and you can get more done, but it lets you use a high-level language like Pascal or C. And I, I know we looked at Pascal first, but then switched over to using uh, the C language mm -hmm. and got one of the very first C compilers for the 68000. And uh, Sounds like you were really sort of cutting edge at GCC. You were trying to push things forward. I, I spoke to Jonathan Hurd and he said that the development system consisted of four linked Tektronix workstations and each of them cost over $140,000 each. Um, that's quite an investment. Oh, yeah. Um, Steve, was, was money no object in 1982? Well, it was Atari's money. So <laughs> I think, no, money was absolutely an, an issue. Um, but you, you needed that sophisticated level of development system in order to, to do the game in the amount of time we were trying to do it. That sounds like a lot of money, but it was, it was certainly the... Uh, how should I say this? So anyone doing hardware development uh, of that scale would need that equipment. They would have to spend that much money in order to do development if you were going to put a 68,000 inside of anything. So, so that was not terribly unusual. And I think the bigger, the, the more interesting thing is what a contrast it was to how Atari continued to do development. They had figured it out back in the late 70s. Mm. Oh, yeah, we write assembler code and we write it by hand on pieces of paper and we hand it to someone who types it in for us. And then we get our code back and we run it on this development system. And it was very crude compared to what we were able to do using these modern, for the time, microprocessor development systems. Mm -hmm. So we had this advantage in coming into the game late of, and I think some of the Atari engineers were a little jealous of what we were able to do because of that. We did not have this past history of that Atari did of, well, we've always developed it like this. And they have this big engineering infrastructure in place to support doing design in a particular way. Yeah, did you was there any back and forward with you and the, you know, the developers over at Atari on the on the West Coast? I mean, did you visit? Did you chat to people like Ed Log or Dave Toy? Was there any interaction between you in those two coin op um departments? Um as little as possible. <laughs> Tell us more. That was deliberately on Doug and Kevin's part, I think, was they saw actually an advantage in us being completely isolated from Atari. And I think the Warner people saw it that way as well, was there was a lot of ways that they saw Atari as being sort of dysfunctional. Really? Yes, of having lots of engineers and not getting enough work done and the whole California drug scene and lots of managers and all of that. Do you think they... So, and we were able to avoid all that. Do you think they were spending too much time in hot tubs? 
Steve? Do you think that was the key problem at Atari? Oh, I, I, I don't want to speak ill of my engineering brethren, but <laughs> that's the that's the impression okay. I got from the Warner people, for example. They looked at us on the East Coast and they were like, my God, how do these people get so much work done? Okay, 1982 sounds a very busy year. Yes. Uh, and also with the, the money coming in for Miss Pac-Man, a pretty profitable year. Yes. But I, I'm intrigued because Quantum, a game that and all three of us have been fortunate enough to play uh, on an original cabinet, a beautiful game. You only end up producing, or Atari only ends up producing, 500. Yeah. Uh, so hang on. Uh, by the end of 1982 into 1983, did you sense that the, uh, the coin-op business was changing stroke crashing? No, it was not obvious at that point. Um, and I think Quantum and Food Fight both came out in early 83, by the time they actually got to production. Mm -hmm. I think it was like January, February, and I cannot recall which one got there first. But yeah, only a few. And I think uh, Food Fight was a couple thousand, something like that. 2,500, 3,000, something like that. Yeah. Which actually was true of a lot of games. That was uh, a lot of them only built that many. And you look at Quantum, I think one of the reasons for Quantum may be that it was a more expensive game to produce mm -hmm. with the, the color XY monitor. But you just sometimes you just never know. And you start to build them and then, oh, there's not, not that much demand. So sometimes you build them and they don't come. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, but you're right. Everyone looks at, at Quantum and sees this beautifully done game with very interesting and unique mechanics as to how it plays. Uh, so, so Betty Ryan did the software and uh, Art Ng did the uh, vector graphics hardware for it it's clever stuff you've just produced you know you, you've had sort of 81 and 82 producing coin ops and then suddenly it seems like you're out of coin ops and you're doing home conversions of arcade games well I, yeah i suppose the first thing i want to ask is steve you personally which one of those kind of home conversions onto various atari consoles which one were you which ones were you directly involved with steve oh the cartridges yes um, none of them. Okay. I was doing, I was, I was a hardware guy. Remember my degrees in geophysics, right? <laughs> I, I don't even have a degree at this point. Um, and you know, that was always my, you've done my, surprisingly well. That was my, always my pushback with people. They'd say, Oh, Steve, can you do this? I'm like, I'm a geologist. Why are you asking me to do this? <laughs> I was a hardware guy. So I was working on, um, coin op hardware. I worked on the graphics hardware for Food Fight, for example. Yeah. And I worked on some other projects for math acceleration and, you know, various graphics things that uh, uh, that we were going to work on. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, sound synthesis chip, I worked a little bit on one of those. And so it was all coin-op hardware is what I was working on. And that was right through 1983. Did you, was there a point when there wasn't... Well, through 80, okay, through 82, uh, that's what I was busy doing. Yeah. And then at the very end of 82, I got shipped out to California to do a one-month class on custom chip design. Okay. And that was very fortunate for me because it turns out that's what I've been doing the rest of my life is chip design. And it all goes back to that class. And I went to that class because I was the only person at that instant who was not busy on a project. And this company called uh, uh, VLSI Technology Incorporated, VTI, came and gave us a little pitch on doing custom chips. So, so that 
got me started on, oh, we can do chip design. And I came back to GCC and I ran my own little class. We had videotapes of the VTI stuff and we got our software and we got our VAX computers and we was like, oh, we can all do this. And I did, mm -hmm. did a little class to teach other engineers at GCC what I had learned and off we went. Oh, we can do our own chips. Yeah, and I presume that led to ultimately, was that your work on the, the Atari console, the 7800? Did that eventually link to that? that that's what that's what it led to. the The first idea we had was uh, a product we called Spring, and and Spring was going to be a home computer slash home game console um, with lots of custom chips that we were going to design. Wow. And so, end of '82, beginning of '83, we start. Oh, we're going to do Spring, and we start working on Spring. And oh, you're going to do this chip, and I'm going to do this chip, and we had it all. Off we go on Spring, and then that eventually led to 7800 because it was what can we do quickly to get something out the door to help out Atari and that eventually became 7800 and um, this podcast is focused on coinop and of course you're actually only in coinop i suppose for only a few years for your very long career yes. in tech I, I just wondered you know what would you think the key things you learned in your few years about coinop that the end took into the rest of your career how so how did that affect the rest of my career or how do I look back on it? I just wondered if what it, did I learn? Uh, yeah, but <laughs> either Steve, yeah. Either one. I just wondered what you took from those years because they you weren't in CoinOp for very long. Uh, no, I wasn't. Although I stayed a little bit involved with the CoinOp work that was being done at GCC, even through that whole period. But that, that was not a major part of my work. But looking back on it, mm -hmm. um, you know, I jokingly say now, I, I used to tell people that, um, what's my job? I corrupt the youth of America. 25 cents at a time. <laughs> and and uh, um, I hope that's on your business card. Uh, I should. I, I, I never actually write it down. I just say it a lot. So, um, But I think that it was, it was just an insane amount of fun to work on a product that um, has such a direct connection to your customer, right? And it, it really forces you to think about your user interface, for one thing. Mm. Your user interface has to be incredibly simple and straightforward and easy and reactive, and that makes for a good game. And to this day, I am frustrated by software that is written poorly because it's not a good game right? Why, why does my mouse lag? Why, when I click this button, it takes a while for something to happen, right? We, back then we, we said, if your game did that, it would be fist through glass, right? Because that's how the arcade player is going to react. He's going to, you know, punch his fist through the glass of your arcade machine. <laughs> and and it, it forces you to realize what's important about your interaction with the, uh, with the player, the player slash user. It absolutely forces me to think about how I communicate to this day. When I, when I write a technical paper, I work very hard at trying to make it graphically clean and, and very straightforward. And I, you know, I take pride in that, that sort of thing. Don't be sloppy. Don't use extra words. Just do what's critical. Get the message across. Mm. Make it fun, right? I don't want the fist through glass. A little coda, Steve, if I may. There's there's a neat little footnote to the Miss Pac-Man story. Um, after after Coinop had been in your rearview mirror 
for some 20 years. Uh, GCC discovered that the game had been reissued by Midway Namco again as, crucially, an arcade cabinet. And I do believe that the very specific and careful language of a good contract allowed you to investigate further with confidence. That was so politely said. Um, you, the, the way you crafted your words there. Thank you. Uh, yes, that's exactly what happened. So, so a little more history. So in 1983, 1984, so there's three companies involved in Ms. Pac-Man, right? In the birthing of Ms. Pac-Man, right. there's General Computer and there's Midway and there's Namco. And there's an agreement between GCC and Midway. And of course, there was an agreement between Namco and Midway. And so finally, eventually, all three parties got in a room and hashed out who owns what and who pays who what if this happens mm. and signed it. Great. All right. Now we've, we've got an agreement. And that's this is 83, 84. So at this point, there's no more Ms. Pac-Man cabinets being made, right? You know, sure. we're hitting the crash. And so, as you say, 20 years later, Namco and uh, uh, Midway bring out a 20th anniversary Ms. Pac-Man. And there was a Ms. Pac-Man slash Galaga combo cabinet. And these these cabinets came out and we noticed. Kevin noticed. He was the first. Mm. Um, he noticed one of these cabinets. And his first reaction was, where's my check? Right? <laughs> you know, we had an agreement. And the agreement said, if Ms. Pac-Man cabinets ever get made, then X dollars will get sent from Namco to General Computer. Yeah. So that started years of negotiation and arbitration between GCC and Namco about what we were owed. Now, um, I'm assuming they, 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 they were pulling some rather dusty paperwork out of the archives for this, and it probably wasn't the same guys at the company as it was back in the day. That was part of the problem, was it was 20 plus mm. years later. And everybody was mm -hmm. gone. They did not know that they had an agreement with General Computer, right? Sure. We had to send them a copy of it. And then they were, oh, oh, okay. Um, so, I mean, there was a legitimate dispute there about, well, how much are we, are we, oh, well, okay, I guess, yeah, we owe you for this, but we're not going to pay you for this other thing. And we said, yes, you are. So that's what led us to arbitration. And the, it was very clear in the contract, for example, if they made coin-op Ms. Pac-Man, there was X dollars per cabinet that they would pay us. Ah, but if they were home use cabs, then... Then that's different. Or if it was right. Ms. Pac-Man on a cell phone or Ms. Pac-Man on an Xbox... Okay. What does the contract say about that? What does the language of the contract have to say? And Kevin, genius Kevin, put language in the contract that arguably covered those situations. It talked about downloadable games. And what we were thinking about back in 1984 was you were going to get games over your cable TV hookup. And you were going to play games that way. But the contract was written in this sort of way of, well, if the game ever travels over a wire to get to you, mm. then you, we get a royalty. So so that was the nature of the dispute between us and, uh, and Namco in the 2000s. And eventually we came through arbitration. And um, there were a few things that went not our way, but a lot of things very much went in our way. But wow, quite the foresight to to word a contract in such yes. a way. Yeah. Again, Kevin, say. Doug and Kevin are both amazing business minds. 
in, in addition to being very good engineers, they both, and, and so for the two of them to end up living in the same hallway at MIT and becoming friends and mm, mm. starting up a partnership, uh, quite astonishing. It's one of those, uh, you know, amazing, wow. How'd that happen? So, Steve, are, are, are royalties still rolling in to this day or, or, or have things died off once again? How much should I tell you? So um, the, the arbitration got settled and we got a big chunk of money from Namco mm-hmm. because that was uh, cumulative money, right, up until that point. And then we started and then we was like, uh, you know, every year we'd get another check from Namco, oh, you know, for this much and for this much. And it sort of dribbled away. Um, and you know, basically trailed off to, to not much, um, a year ago. Okay. I'm being very careful. I'm, I'm carefully telling you things that are public because they are in the public court filings. Of course. So, uh, up until a year ago, this arbitration result is in force Hmm. between Namco and GCC, except that there is no GCC anymore. GCC eventually folded itself up and stopped existing at all. And that was actually one of Namco's arguments during the arbitration of like, well, yeah, maybe we owe GCC money, but there is no GCC anymore. Mm. And our argument back was, well, if we knew you were going to owe us money, we would not have folded up the company. So you actually wanted them to pierce the corporate veil. That's right. And so, and and the arbitrator was like, yeah, that, sorry, Namco, that's not going to fly. You know, I've got all the shot, the stockholders, there were four stockholders of GCC. Mm. All four stockholders are standing here in front of me. Um, and he was like, that's not going to fly. We're just going to pretend the company's still here. And uh, so there's this agreement that exists there's this arbitration ruling that exists and Namco, if Namco does certain things with the Ms. Pac-Man intellectual property, they owe some money to GCC or the, the successors of GCC. Well, Namco's attorney start calling up Kevin Curran to basically, hey, we want to buy you out of this agreement. Okay. And Kevin is like, yeah, don't bother me, go away. Um, and what Namco did not realize is that so, so there are four stockholders of GCC. There's Kevin, there's Doug McRae, there was John Tilko, who was also a fellow student way, way back when, and actually graduated ahead of all of us, aeronautical engineer, and he was a real business guy, and he put in some money really early on. So he got a piece of GCC. Right. And then our attorney, a guy named Jerry Hosier, He's the guy we brought in to do the super missile attack uh, to represent us against Atari during super missile attack. Okay. This guy is a phenomenal intellectual property guy. I mean, it's just his story is amazing. Anyway, we got involved with him early on. Okay, great. So here's the four stockholders, right? Kevin and Doug are now extremely wealthy guys. Jerry Hosier is insanely wealthy. Uh, Tilco has has done very well for himself in the aerospace industry. And here's Namco trying to nickel and dime them to sign off. And Kevin is like, sure. what is it with these guys? What What is going on? <laughs> They're not telling us, right? They're not telling us what they really... And then out of the blue, literally out of the blue, we get a call. I, it came to me first, a guy who runs a company called At Games. His name is uh, P.K. Huang. P.K. Sorry, I'm not good with my Chinese names. I just call him P.K. Mm-hmm. He calls up, hey, I want to do something with Ms. Pac-Man. And we're like, well, 
geez, you know, Namco. He's like, I'm already talking to Namco. I want to talk to you. Okay. So he comes in and he and Kevin and I got together and had lunch one day. PK ended up buying the Namco agreement from us. And he offered us way more than what Namco was offering us. So why wouldn't you sell to him? So, so as far as we're concerned, we GCC, we've sold our interest, our royalty interest. We have sold it to add games. We are out of the picture. All right. About a year ago, as soon as this happened, this really, really pissed off Namco. And they filed a lawsuit against Ad Games. Okay. This was big news like a year ago. Ms. Pac-Man, yet again, the saga of Ms. Pac-Man. Yeah. Right? The intellectual property of Ms. Pac-Man is yet again a story. And so, you know, you can read through the complaints because, again, it's all public. But, yeah, uh, Namco's upset. Namco sued at Games. So GCC is not really part of the... And so that's the that's the situation up until about two weeks ago okay. when the suit was dropped. And and according to the court, they had a multi-hour settlement agreement, and the court said all the items in the dispute have been settled. Does this suggest to you, Steve, that something's going on with the Miss Pac-Man license? Yes, absolutely. I think something's going on, and I don't know what it is. And I think that Namco, uh, over the years, has been spooked to not do anything with Ms. Pac-Man because they would have to pay us a little bit of money. Geez, those GCC people are going to show up and want more money. And so it was just easier for them to just not do anything. So um, 40th 40th anniversary is coming up. Yes, exactly. And and 40th anniversary of Pac-Man was was this year. Yep. And I think except for COVID, it would have been a big deal. What would the uh, Japan Olympics have been? You know, and but I, I, I do not know at all what's going on between Namco and Ad Games. But that's, you know, all I know is I saw that the the uh, the dispute was was settled. Steve, thank you so much for for sharing your stories. Um, it's been very insightful. Um, we've certainly learned a lot today. Well, I was uh, I was happy to do it. And um, uh, anytime you want to talk some more, I'm. I got more stories. Steve, I'd like to say not only are your stories fascinating, I do actually think of you every morning when I'm sat on the toilet. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> okay. Oh, that, uh, hold on, hold on. Let me just hold on to that picture for a minute. Let me finish. Is that um, I've got a signed Miss Pac-Man flyer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, I, look, I, I look up and I've got a Miss Pac-Man flyer that you very kindly signed for me. So thank you. You always help me start my day right. Thanks, Steve. Oh, I'm, I'm, I, that, that you just made my day. I'm so, pli- I'm so pleased about that. Keeping Paul regular. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, and for me, Steve, thanks. I, um, as well as being um, it's supremely interesting in this podcast, you've been an enormous help to me with my research efforts over the years. Um, this has genuinely been the best interview I think we've done so far. Well, thank you. You're only as good as your last interviewee. <laughs> I admire your honesty, however ephemeral it may be. I, I, I can always um, tell when Tony's fibbing and he wasn't then. That was the truth, I can tell you. Hand on heart. Sure. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury, and arcade blogger, Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor. 
Thank you.